Jesus' triumphal entry fulfilled prophecy and proved that he was the promised king of Israel. We must worship Jesus for who he is, not what we want him to do. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. students, if you open Bibles to John chapter 12, John chapter 12, we're going to try and uh, get through about a third of this, maybe. As you know, we've been in the Gospel of John for about six months, probably be here the rest of the year. The significance of John 12 is, is really multifaceted. This real significance, this is the last record of our Lord's public ministry to the nation of Israel. Beginning in John 13, the ministry of Jesus goes private. John 13 through 17, those four chapters detail his private, really, instruction to his disciples. Beginning in John 18, we have his uh, arrest, six illegal trials, flogging, crucifixion, and resurrection. So the history is we're at the very end of Christ's three-year-plus ministry on planet Earth, he has been ministering throughout Israel, both in southern Israel, Galilee, northern Israel, northern Israel, Galilee, southern Israel, Judea. He has claimed to be the Messiah, and he has demonstrated that by fulfilling dozens of Old Testament prophecies about his coming, about his mission on Earth. His mission was to pay for human sin by dying in the place of the sinner, so that sinners' reconciliation relationship with God the Father could be reconciled through the death of Jesus the Son. So Jesus has made some outrageous claims, and he's demonstrated that with some outrageously uh, supernatural behavior. He's demonstrated his deity, documented this claim that he is God in the human flesh. Think about it, over three years, he has created food to feed hungry people, he has walked on water, he has demonstrated power over nature by stilling storms with the word, he's cast out demons, power over the afterlife, He's revealed people's thoughts to them on multiple occasions. It says, and they were thinking X, Y, Z, and Jesus said, I know what you're thinking. Here's what you're thinking. I know why you're thinking it. Here's your motives, right? Demonstrating lordship, godhood. He's healed thousands of sick people. He's raised the dead. There's probably very few sick people left in Israel at the end of this three-year period. Very, very few. And there's no neutrality when it comes to Jesus Christ. One of the things we're going to see in this chapter is either you love him or you hate him. He claimed to be God, which means one of three consequences has to happen. Either he's a liar, he's not telling the truth, or he's a lunatic, he's a nutcase, he really does believe he's God, he's just crazy, or in fact he is who he says he is, he is Lord, he is God come in human flesh. And in this narrative, John gives us three contrasting responses to the claims of Jesus and his words and his works. We're going to first of all take a look at the sacrificial love of Mary, and then we're going to take a look at the selfish hatred of Judas, 
and the religious leaders, and then lastly, we're going to take a look at the crowds. And the crowds were very fickle, very capricious. They followed him only as long as he met their expectations. And there's a tremendous number of people in our contemporary culture that will follow Jesus as long as he does what they want him to do. But they don't want the idea of him as Lord. They want the idea of him as a servant. So let's begin the narrative in John 12, verse 1. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Jesus was, whom, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Here's our first principle. Jesus is worthy of our extravagant love and sacrificial worship. Jesus is worthy of our extravagant love and sacrificial worship. Now, we know that the Passover occurs on a Friday. This occurred six days earlier. So this date of this dinner is Shabbat. It's the Jewish Sabbath, our Saturday. And Jesus visited Bethany about two miles east of Jerusalem, just over the rise of the Mount of Olives, because he's a guest of honor at a dinner. So there's a dinner put on in Jesus' honor. And when you read the narrative, it appears that Martha's the hostess, and she is serving uh, the meal. Remember the last time we saw Martha serving a meal, she was whining and complaining about it. Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet, and she was busy serving, and she said, Lord, tell Mary to get off her blessed assurance and help me in the kitchen, or something like that. I'm doing all this work by myself, wham, 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 right? Now she's serving a Saturday night dinner party for a much larger crowd, minimum 17, probably in the 20s, and she's not whining at all. When you look at Martha, you're persuaded that her love language is what? Acts of service. I mean, that's what she does. She serves, and that's her spiritual, not spiritual gift, but that's her love language that brings her joy. And here she's doing it with joy and contentment. No complaint. Obviously, the Lord had an effect on her life. Now, this was really a thank you dinner, and it was really a celebration dinner. It happened probably a week or so after Lazarus was raised from the dead. And the Gospel of Matthew tells us that this dinner was held not in Mary and Martha's home, but in the home of a man called Simon the leper. Matthew 26, 6 says, Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem, at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. Mark 14.3c says she broke the vial and poured it over his head. Now, if you have a name like Simon the leper, who's that? Simon the leper. Well, Simon was an extraordinarily common name in Israel. So Jesus sometimes said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Because Simon Peter's dad's name was John. Simon, son of John. So Simon was so common, you needed some other identifier to talk about which Simon you're talking about. This guy was known as Simon the leper. Well, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that I think this guy was probably a leper. And he might have been a leper for years and years and years and years. But since he's hosting a dinner party, we can assume that Jesus healed him. Or he wouldn't be hosting a dinner party because they quarantined all their lepers for obviously transmission's sake. He's now a follower of Jesus, and 
he wants to host a thank you dinner as well, uh, along with uh, to celebrate Christ raising Lazarus from the dead because he's been healed and he wants to say thank you. Lazarus is mentioned as a guest, which seems to indicate that the dinner didn't take place in his own home. And Mary, the brother of Lazarus, is devoted to Jesus, and we will see how that occurs. The previous two times we've seen Mary, she's always seated at the feet of Jesus. The first time Martha's serving dinner, and Mary's seated at Jesus' feet, probably in what we would call the living room or the family room, so to speak, and he's talking with her and sharing divine truth, and she's absorbing that, and uh, that was the first time. The second time we see her at the feet of Jesus is when she falls at his feet weeping and says, if you had been here, my brother had not died. So she's always in a position of honoring Jesus, of worshiping him and listening to him, and now she desires to honor him at this dinner. And her love language seems to be giving gifts and spending quality time with people. She spends a lot of time with the Lord, and she wants to say thank you for raising her brother Lazarus from the dead, that's probably more important than we might think. Back in that era, there was no life insurance. If you died, the, the spouse, the surviving spouse, didn't wind up with a big bucket of cash. Didn't happen. They didn't have life insurance. In that time, men were the sole breadwinners outside the home. And so when a, 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 a husband died, a breadwinner died, a male provider for the family died, the women and children were often left destitute because there wasn't jobs in the community for them to do. Almost everybody was involved in probably subsistence farming or something like that. So Mary and Martha have been saved from poverty because Jesus healed their brother Lazarus, who was outside the home breadwinner for this family. And Mary wants to express her gratitude by giving Jesus a gift of something we call spikenard. It's called spikenard because the roots of this plant looks like spikes. And they made spikenard um, uh, out of the roots. They crushed the roots and uh, distilled it into a very dense, pure oil. Now, this is a member of the honeysuckle family, and it grows a long way from Israel. It grows in the Himalayas, northern uh, uh, India, southern China, and Nepal. So you can see that this is a, not a local uh, object, it's an imported object. It was often carried in an alabaster vial. I don't know if you've ever seen alabaster. It's almost translucent. Thin alabaster, you can hold up to the light. It's a rock and you can see through it. So they fashioned a container that would hold this uh, pure nard, this spike nard. And Mark reports that Mary poured it on Jesus' head and John reports that she poured it on his feet. Well, she probably poured it both on his head and on his feet. And John notes that the odor of the perfume filled the entire house. This is very concentrated stuff. You would normally use a drop or two, and she pours all 12 ounces. The fact that John says the fragrance filled the house would indicate that he was an eyewitness. He was there. Well, of course he was. All the disciples were with Jesus at this dinner. When, when they had a dinner party, uh, it wasn't like Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper where they had tables and chairs and you, you, know, you pulled your chair up to the table. The tables were very, very low, you know, a foot, maybe 18 inches in height. And they were surrounded the table on three sides with mats or cushions. And the fourth side, like a U-shape, they left open so they could bring the food to the table. So they would sit on three sides. And they actually wouldn't sit, they'd kind of lay on their left side. So your head and your shoulders are toward the table and your feet are sticking away from the table, right? 
And you had cushions there at that point in time. There's a couple of reasons they did that. Number one, in that era, feet were really smelly. Just saying. They were not enclosed in shoes. They didn't have anything as closed-toed shoes. They just had sandals. Winter, spring, summer, or fall, it was sandals. And they didn't have sidewalks. They had dusty roads. So when you walked three or four, five, ten miles, your feet became enormously encased with dust and dirt and smell and everything else. So when you entered a home for dinner, the first thing that occurred in the entryway, you would be met by a servant, usually the lowliest of the servants, and they on hands and knees would take your sandals off and wash your feet and dry them. Quite frankly, we didn't want smelly, dirty feet on the hostess's mats around the dinner table, and you didn't want to smell somebody else's feet, so the washing the feet in that era was a very, very normal ritual. When you went into a home, it was kind of a welcome, and they might even put some oil on your feet as well. So it was very, very common practice. Um, that's why John the Baptist said, I'm not even worthy to unloosen the latch of Jesus' sandal. He said, I'm not even worthy to be the lowest slave compared to Jesus because the lowest slave was the one who took the sandals off and washed the feet at that point in time. Interesting, it's now Saturday, Thursday of this coming week, Jesus is going to wash his own disciples' feet because none of them would do it. None of them would humble themselves to serve each other, and so Jesus is going to give them an object lesson in washing each other's feet. And the feet were dirty because they were walking in dust at that point. So we look at Mary's gift here, and it's obviously extravagant. It's enormously sacrificial. This perfume was probably the most precious thing she owned. So you look in your house, and Aside from your bank accounts and all this other stuff, we all have these treasures we keep. I know your children think they're trash, but you think they're treasures. They will be trash when you're gone, but now they're your treasures, right? The most important thing you own, that was what this was for Mary. It was almost an investment store of value, like gold coins. You would buy this expensive perfume, and you would maybe even pass it on to the next generation. So this was the single largest asset she had by far. And she didn't put a drop or two on. She broke the top and poured the whole thing on at Jesus all at once. This was lavish love. Just in case you're wondering, real worship is expensive. It always costs something. It always involves sacrifice. And because Mary loved Jesus extravagantly, she gave him everything she owned extravagantly as well. And her act of worship took great courage, especially drying his feet with her hair. Now, in that era, a woman would never, ever not cover your hair. Loose hair meant loose woman. That was the culture. So every woman always had their hair covered in public. Many times, even in their home, you had your hair covered. So for her to loosen her hair in public was just a scandal. I mean, it was shameful at that point in time. And Mary probably rubbed the ointment in Jesus' feet and then used her hair as a towel to wipe up the excess. And that was a shocking, cultural no-no for her to do that. Enormously judgmental. A woman was not to act like that in the presence of men. A proper woman would never do that. But Mary was consumed with worshiping Jesus. She wasn't concerned with public opinion. You probably have noted, even in our culture, even in 
a Christian culture. When you love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, some people, even Christians, will criticize you for not being practical and not being sensible. And aren't you going a little overboard? I mean, restrain yourself, right? Loving Jesus extravagantly is almost never socially acceptable, even among Christians. And Mary is immediately criticized. Look at verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, quote, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was the thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Matthew 26, 8 even expands this and says, But the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, Why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. And Mark tells us that they were scolding her. Here's the principle. Nothing is wasted when it's devoted to Jesus. Write it down. Nothing is wasted when it's devoted to Jesus. Now, John identifies Judas as the lead critic. Anytime you see Judas in Scripture, he's always identified as one of the twelve. He's always mentioned last on the list, you know, when they run the list of disciples. And he's always identified as the betrayer. And he criticizes her actions by appealing to the virtue of, quote, helping the poor. And he notes the costliness of this gift. He said this perfume could have been sold for 300 denarii. Now, a denarii in that age was one day's wages. Working man, working woman, whatever, one day's wages was one denarii. So this was 300 days' wages. Got it? An eight-hour day times 300 is 2,400 hours. This perfume was worth 2,400 hours of human labor to buy. Now, at 20 bucks an hour times 2,400 hours, that's 48 grand that she poured out on him like that all at once. So you take your annual income for one year and say, that's what I'm going to give to Jesus. Right now, all at once. Because I love him that much. And you would have lots of Christian people saying, have you lost your mind? How could you possibly do that, right? Now, spikenard was very expensive. It took a long time to make. It took a long time to distill and crush the roots and process and then it had to come all the way from India by camel train. So the transport costs on this thing were crazy expensive. Here's what Judas and the disciples were saying. Jesus is not worth that much money. They said, why did you waste it on him? That makes no sense, Mary. You wasted the money pouring it all on Jesus. The money would have been better spent by giving it to the poor. Wow. What's falling out of their mouth? You know, now, Judas is pretty easy to explain. He was a lying hypocrite, right? 
all the donations into Jesus' ministry went into a common purse. And who's the group's banker? Who's the group's, you know, um, treasurer? Judas. He was elected by the disciples probably for that, which means they trusted him. It says he was a thief. He habitually stole from the ministry without being discovered. You say, well, what's going on in Jesus' heart? Well, when Jesus called him to be part of the 12, Jesus knew immediately, obviously, that he was going to be the betrayer. But Judas believed that Jesus was going to be a king, a political military king, throw off Rome, establish a physical kingship reign over the land of Israel, and Judas wanted to be in the ground floor of that political party. He said, if Jesus is forming a political party, he's going to take over as king. I'm going to be part of that political party. I want to be part of his government because you get rich and famous and powerful being part of a guy who can work miracles. I mean, I want to be on that gravy train. Well, for three years, Judas has been patiently waiting for the money to come in, and it hasn't been coming in, so he's stealing because he's greedy. And now Jesus is talking about dying, not setting up his kingdom. His dreams for wealth are disappearing. Interesting, Matthew and Mark note that Judas wasn't the only one who criticized Mary. The rest of the disciples followed Judas's lead and piled on with their criticism. It's pretty clear that Judas had influence with this group of disciples, and he was very, very much a skilled con artist. As a matter of fact, he had everybody so fooled that no one knew he was going to betray the Lord at the Last Supper. When Jesus said, what you've done to do, go do. And everybody thought he was going buying stuff for the poor when he was going to the chief priest and betraying him. Only Jesus knew, which means he was a really good con artist. And they only figured out the guy was a thief after he betrayed Jesus. You know, it sounds so sensible and so practical to criticize Mary for pouring out a year's salary on Jesus. I mean, they could have helped a lot of poor people. Think about it. With one year's salary... But they didn't love Jesus like Mary loved Jesus. They followed Jesus because of what he said, what he did, and what they were hoping he was going to do, set up a kingdom. Mary loved Jesus for who he was. And her sacrifice was an expression of her love. It really raises the question, how would Jesus know we love him? Would we say, Jesus, you're worth a lot, but you ain't worth a year's salary. I'm sorry, eternal life is not worth a year's salary. Your death ain't worth that much. And when you say it, you go, oh, that's pretty tough. But look at our behavior as a Christian community. Jesus defends Mary, verse 7. Therefore, Jesus said, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Mark 14 tells us, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Truly I say to you, who wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Verse 10, very telling. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priest in order to betray him. Here's the principle. Don't wait until the funeral to express your love and appreciation. Say it while I can hear it. Don't wait until the funeral to express your love and appreciation. Say it while I can hear it. 
I have been to funerals where the eulogies were just patent lies. I mean, they're saying, oh, Saint so-and-so, my brother-in-law, you know, he was in the heavenly places all the time. But he was a schmuck. And everybody knew it. But after he's dead, of course, now he's got a halo around his head. Jesus knows that this coming Friday, six days from now, is the day that the Father had ordained him to die for the sins of the world. And everyone in this room thinks, he's going to set up his military kingdom. we got lots of time to appreciate him. No worries. Mary, that's crazy. I mean, he's going to be king here in a few days. He's setting up the kingdom, right? In fact, he's going to die in the next six days, and no one knows it except Jesus. And Jesus refers to his burial at this dinner party. Mourners in that era often honored their dead by extravagantly anointing their bodies, you know, at death for the burial. Mary anointed Jesus before the burial. And she's a good example of expressing love to people before they die. I mean, a heartfelt eulogy after death is fine, but it doesn't mean anything to the one who's dead. Just saying. They're not listening. Flowers at the funeral are nice, but flowers before the funeral are even better. Think about it. So Jesus is not saying we shouldn't help the poor, right? It's a question of priorities. He says, the poor you can help tomorrow, they'll be here. But I'm only here six more days. He didn't say that. He said, I'm only here for a little while. Jesus is worthy of everything we have and everything we are. Isaac Watts wrote the lyrics to the hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And the last verse says, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. See, Jesus demonstrated his love for us when he paid our sin debt at the cross and set us free from sin and death. Jesus didn't shed some of his blood. He shed it all. He laid down his life. Question is, If Jesus measured our love by what we gave him in return, what would he say about our love? How much does it cost us to love him? Mary gave extravagantly because she loved greatly, and she loved greatly because she knew Jesus because she spent a great deal of time with him. If you want to know Jesus more and you want to love him more, open his word and ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes and open your heart. Have you ever asked God to break your heart? You probably should, because we all have hard hearts. Ask God, ask the Holy Spirit to say, Lord, open my eyes that I would understand how much you love me so that I would be able to love you by your power in return. Now, John details a great contrast here. Mary loved Jesus extravagantly. Judas hated Jesus extravagantly. Mary sacrificed, Judas stole. Mary confessed that Jesus is God. Judas betrayed Jesus to those who killed him. Since he was unable to get his hands on the 300 denarii, right, because they never sold the perfume, she poured it out, Judas went to the chief priests and cut a deal to betray Jesus for how much? 30 pieces of silver. That was the price of a common slave in that era. Verse 9, the large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there in Bethany, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they also might see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priest planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away 
and believing in Jesus. Now, this is six days before Passover. Jerusalem is jam-packed with pilgrims who come early to purify themselves. Before you did Passover, there was a period of purification before the Passover. And they had all heard that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. So many of them came out of Jerusalem, walked to two miles up the hill to the Mount of Olives to see Lazarus. Because Lazarus was exhibit A, that Jesus is God. Many of the Jews from Jerusalem had just seen him be raised from the dead a few days before, and they were spreading the word, and it was spreading like wildfire. And as a result, many of the Jews were abandoning the religious leaders and following Jesus. And they were losing their hold on the people, and they were so desperate that they said, we need to kill the witness. We need to kill Lazarus as well as kill Jesus, because if you kill Jesus and Lazarus stays alive, he's a testimony to the deity of Christ. We can't be having that. It's, it's fascinating to me. Given the fact that Lazarus didn't stay dead the first time, I'm not sure why they thought that making him dead the second time was going to be effective. You know, I mean, it didn't work too well the first go-round, so you're going to try it again. Sin makes you stupid. We've talked about that. Verse 12. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, that's the Passover feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, quote, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Here's the principle. Jesus' triumphal entry fulfilled prophecy and proved that he was the promised king of Israel. Jesus' triumphal entry fulfilled prophecy and proved that he was the promised king of Israel. Now, for three years, Jesus has always said, my time has not come. My hour has not come. And now he says, my time has come. What does that mean? When he says, my time has not come for three years, he says, it's not my father's time for me to go to the cross yet. So, Jesus continually veiled his identity as Messiah. I mean, he'd do a miracle and he'd say, don't tell anybody, right? He would, he would run away. He would literally hide himself from the crowds when they wanted to make him king because it wasn't time for that to occur. He wanted, one, to avoid being prematurely crowned king by the crowds, and two, he wanted to avoid being murdered by the Pharisees before it was God's time for him to be murdered and go to the cross for the sins of the world. Now it was Christ's time, God's time for Jesus to go to the cross, and Jesus is going to set in motion intentionally everything that occurs in order that that crucifixion will take place on God's schedule. Friday, the Passover lamb will be slain for the sins of the world. So he now arranges for his presentation as the king of Israel to the nation. And the next day is what we call Palm Sunday. All four Gospels record this event. Jerusalem was just packed with pilgrims who had come to celebrate Passover. Jerusalem's population in this era was about 30,000 people, normally. That was normal, 30,000 people population. But pilgrims came down from Galilee and all around the Mediterranean. There were G uh, Gentile proselytes and Jewish um, 
uh, people living all around the Mediterranean, and everybody wanted to come to Passover for, uh, to Jerusalem for Passover. So at this point in time, no one's really sure how many people, but conservative estimates say you had hundreds of thousands of people in Jerusalem. So it was the whole hillsides around Jerusalem, big, you talk about a campsite, it was huge campsite, right? No RVs, by the way, but dry land camping, right? So there was a huge crowd there, and there are actually two crowds this morning. There are first crowds in Bethany with Jesus at the top of the Mount of Olives, just over the rim. There's another crowd in Jerusalem around the temple who have come for the Passover celebration purification. Jesus is bringing the first crowd with him over the hill, down the Mount of Olives, across the Kidron Brook, into the Eastern Gate, and the second crowd is coming out of Jerusalem, up the Mount of Olives, and they meet on the side of the Mount of Olives. And on the way down to Jerusalem, Jesus sends two of his disciples. He says, go get me a donkey, a colt. And they do. And Luke 19.35 says they brought the colt to Jesus and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. Verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. So the word about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead is spreading like wildfire throughout the crowd, and they begin to shout and sing and chant, Hosanna, Hosanna. Hosanna means save now, save now. They believe that this miracle-working Jesus was going to be their promised king, and now was the time when he was going to overthrow Rome, and set up his earthly kingdom on earth. And they thought, he's now's the time we're going to coronate him as king. And they threw the coats in the path, kind of like a red carpet. And the donkey would walk over, and they picked their coats up again. And the crowds cut down palm branches and waved them and threw them on the path, also part of the carpet for Jesus to go down the hill on. Palm branches, by the way, were symbols of victory and triumph over the enemy. And they thought, Jesus is our general, our king, and he is going to knock Rome out of here and give us, set us free. And the, the crowd is singing, Hosanna, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Even the king of Israel and the Pharisees tell Jesus, tell your disciples to shut up because they're calling you the king of Israel. Don't you realize that's a title for deity? The king of Israel, the Messiah, that's a divine title. And Jesus tells them, if these people who are made in my image, in the image of God, if they don't praise me, the rocks are going to cry out, and they will praise me. All creation is designed to praise the Creator. All creation will praise the Creator. Either in heaven or in hell, the Creator will always receive the worship that He is due. So Jesus' entry into Jerusalem fulfilled multiple Old Testament prophecies which established his legitimate claim as the Messiah. Now Psalm 18 is what they're quoting here, and Psalm 18 is called the Conqueror's Psalm, the Conqueror's Psalm, like a king. And it's always recited at the Passover. And the words they chanted, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that's a direct reference to Israel's promised Messiah. Even the way Jesus entered Jerusalem fulfilled prophecy Zechariah 9, 9 had been prophesied hundreds of years before. This particular day was 
notated by Zechariah when he said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus' transportation method into the city was notated prophetically centuries in advance. Jesus fulfilled that prophecy exactly. Now, he's riding on a donkey's colt, not a war horse. Kings that entered a city and they came to conquer, they were riding on a war horse, armed. And they were basically saying, we're putting you under the thumb. Riding a donkey was a traditional transport mechanism on the part of a king coming into a city that says, I'm coming in peace. No one wages war on a colt of a donkey, right? So it was very much a message that he was coming in peace. Now the truth is, first coming, Jesus did not come to conquer. He came to seek and to save that which were lost. He came to die. He came to make peace between God and humans by his death on the cross. At his second coming, he's coming to rule and reign. John notes in Revelation 19.11, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful, and true, and in righteousness he judge and wages war. He's talking about Jesus at his second coming is going to rule and reign planet earth. And the next verse says he's going to rule the earth with a rod of iron. So those who rebel against him will be under his divine authority. Verse 16. These things, they're talking about the day's events and, and those leading up to it. These things the disciples did not understand at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify about him. For this reason also, the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Here's the principle. We must worship Jesus for who he is, not for what we want him to do. We must worship Jesus for who he is, not what we want him to do. Now, both the crowds and the disciples at this point believe that Jesus is a military Messiah. And he's going to set up a kingdom over planet Earth from Jerusalem, and he's going to do it now. Remember when he ascends into heaven? They're going outside the city after the resurrection. He's ready to go over the Mount of Olives, and the disciples say, is this when you're going to set up your kingdom? Is it, is it now? They still didn't understand the full picture. Now, the crowds, they were pretty fickle. They loved his supernatural powers. And when they saw Lazarus raised from the dead, they said, man, this guy is something. You want evidence that he is God and he can conquer Rome? He's got power over life and death. He can surely throw Rome out of here. But they only believed him because they believed that he was going to do what they wanted him to do. You know, I'll follow you, Jesus, as long as you make me healthy and wealthy and fit and famous and wise and feed my lusts, and then I'll follow you. We got a whole cohort of people on planet Earth that follow Jesus only because he does what they think he's got to do. Otherwise, they're not going to follow him. Of course, Jesus rides into Jerusalem, 
And the crowd's disappointed immediately because he doesn't go attack Rome. He doesn't attack the Antonio Fortress, which was right next to the temple. He doesn't call down an earthquake on Rome. The very next day, he goes into their temple, the Jewish temple, and cleans it out, right? Throws out the money changers, dumps over the tables, drives them all out for selling sacrificial animals for profit. So he attacks the Jewish corrupt religious system. And that infuriated them. They wanted him to attack Rome. They didn't want him telling them that they were in trouble with God because they were not following the letter of the law or the spirit of the law. They were rejecting their Messiah. And the disciples didn't understand this. But remember, when Jesus rose from the dead, the two disciples on the way to Emmaus, they were discouraged. Jesus is dead. And it says that Jesus went and walked with them on the road and says, didn't you understand that the Christ had to die according to the scriptures? And he opened their minds to what the Old Testament said. Later on, the disciples are meeting in the upper room. The doors are closed and Jesus shows up through closed doors. And he says he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He's telling them, this is what the Old Testament said about me. I had to die. And you should know what the Old Testament said. You're believers in the Old Testament. When the Holy Spirit came in Acts 2 and 3, then they got the full picture and now they understood the whole thing. He had to come twice. The first time to die, the second time to rule and reign. Now, the Pharisees are furious, and they're also frustrated. Everything they have tried to stop Jesus has backfired, right? They had planned to kill him after the Passover because they feared a riot if they killed the most popular man in Israel at the festival. So you see Jesus very wisely... In the evenings, he's always out of sight someplace. In the daytime, he's always surrounded by a crowd. So he can't be assassinated before Good Friday. He was the most popular man in Israel at this point in time. Now, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem has forced their hand. They were going to wait till after the festival. Now they say, we need to kill him now, as soon as possible. And lo and behold, who shows up with a proposal to betray him? Judas, and it says they were very glad, cut him a deal for 30 pieces of silver. And that betrayal will occur when? Thursday night, exactly on God's eternal schedule, because Jesus has to die on Friday as the Lamb of God who takes the sin of the world on himself. God's calendar is included, already includes in, the rejection of Israel, and the assassination and murder by the chief priests. Now, you would look at this and say, well, the crowds are really loving Jesus, man. I mean, they're really praising him. He's got to be feeling good about that. How did he respond as he's driving down the hill or riding down the hill on this donkey, and the crowds were calling him the king of Israel? Well, Luke 19 gives us a very counterintuitive response. Luke 19, 41. When Jesus approached Jerusalem... He saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will lother you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another because 
you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Here's the principle. God holds everyone accountable for their response to his son Jesus. God holds everyone accountable for their response to his son Jesus. Now the crowds are ecstatic today because they think Jesus is going to set them free from Roman rule. They're going to coronate him king and he's going to go to war for them. But the crowds are very fickle. Jesus knows that by Friday, this same crowd is going to be yelling, crucify him, crucify him. Right now, it's Hosanna, Hosanna, King of Israel. Six days, five days later, they're going to say crucify. Jesus also knew that the consequences of Israel rejecting their king were catastrophic. In 70 AD, a few decades later, Titus Vespasian, the Roman general, three legions of Roman soldiers, conquered Jerusalem after a multi-year siege, tore the city and the temple down to the ground. Down to the ground, down to the foundations. Over one million Jewish people, men, women, and children were slaughtered. The price of rejecting their Messiah with full knowledge was the destruction of the nation. Why did God judge them so severely? Why would they lose their nation just because they rejected their Messiah? God had told them when Messiah was coming, and he expected them to receive Messiah and believe in him. And after three years of a great deal of miracles and words and works, they didn't do that. Now I'm going to tell you right now a caveat. Throughout history, there have been many, 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 many Gentiles who blame the Jews for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. That is only partially true. What put Christ on the cross is not the Sanhedrin, it's not the Roman soldiers, it's your sin and it's my sin. It's the sins of the world that led to the crucifixion of Christ. They were the means for that to take place. So what I'm going to say here is, what God held Israel to, he holds you and I as Christians today accountable to as well. Let me explain. The exact date of the Messiah's presentation to Israel as their king had been prophesied in detail in the book of Daniel, which was written about 539 B.C. I'm just going to summarize it for you. We could spend a whole lesson on this. Some of the most astonishing prophecies in the Old Testament are Daniel 9, verses 24 to 27, four verses. And those verses specify that the official presentation of Messiah as the king of Israel is going to occur 483 years after the decree to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And they, they talk about 69 times 7, that's 483 years. So the decree to rebuild Jerusalem was issued by Artaxerxes Longimanus, on March, March 14th, 445 B.C. When you use the normal 360-day prophetic year, anytime in the Old Testament you're talking about prophetic years and New Testament as well, it's always 360-day years, and you correct for leap years, and you measure from March 14th, 445 B.C., you get 173,880 days. And that takes you to the precise day of Jesus <laughs> triumphal entry into Jerusalem, April 6, A.D. 32. And if you want the calculations, get Sir Robert Anderson's book, The Coming Prince. has all the calculations. 
We serve a God of precision. There is no approximate with God. It is precise. He said, this is the exact day he shows up, and I'm holding you accountable to know it. We have multiple prophecies fulfilled on this day. Jesus is riding on a colt, as prophesied. The crowd is quoting the exact Old Testament scripture about this very event, as prophesied. Jesus presents himself as Israel's king on the exact date that Daniel prophesied. Remember, the Jewish religious leaders were experts in the Old Testament. They held that over people. God held them accountable to know it so they could welcome their king and receive him and believe in him. And we say, well, that's pretty dramatic. Well, what's the accountability factor he has for people today? Today's world not only has all the Old Testament prophecies fulfilled, we have the entire New Testament which documents the Messiahship, the miracles, the fulfillment prophecies of Messiah. We have 2,000 years of history of the church. Millions and millions and millions of lives have been transformed. Virtually every enduring institution in Western civilization came as a result of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hospitals, universities all started out as Christian institutions. So if we think our culture is not going to be held accountable for the knowledge we have, we are delusional. We had more knowledge than the Jewish nation had back then. God holds everyone accountable for their response to how they respond to his son. John has given us three examples. Mary loved Jesus sacrificially, extravagantly, because she understood how much he loved her. You and I have the cross to demonstrate how much he loved us. We don't ever have to doubt that. God demonstrates his own love toward us, and now while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Judas hated Jesus selfishly. He was willing to sell his soul for all eternity for 30 pieces of silver. And you say, that is just stupid. How many people in our planet are trading a day at a time for more loot from this world? And at the end of the day, when they're on their deathbed, there ain't a U-Haul going to take that stuff behind the hearse into heaven. It all stays here. What do we trade their lives for? What's going to matter for all eternity? And the crowds follow Jesus capriciously. Lord, if you give us what we want, if you establish your kingdom, if you feed us free food, blah, 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 we'll follow you. How does the world know that we love Jesus? Is it our mouth, which is important, we need to be verbal about it. Is it our behavior? We know that Jesus sacrificed everything for us. So what are we willing to sacrifice for him? Think about it. Let's review and I'll ask Tom to come up and do prayer and praise. First, Jesus is worthy of our extravagant love and sacrificial worship. Number two, nothing is wasted when it's devoted to Jesus. I don't care if you're changing your grandchildren's diapers or your mom and dad's diapers. I don't care if you're scrubbing toilets, washing dishes, doing dinner, whatever the day-to-day stuff that you go, well, that's not very spiritual. If you do it because you want to serve Jesus, if you do it for his glory, it counts. 
I read a story this week about a missionary couple with Wycliffe Bible translators spent 20 years translating scripture for a particular tribe in Latin America. 20 years. And toward the end of that time, the tribe started dealing drugs and selling and doing all sorts of stuff because of the drug trade. And the day they were going to have the final celebration for the inauguration of scripture in their language, not one tribes person showed up. Not one. And the wife was just bitter and said, God, we spent 20 years at this and no one showed up. And she said later at a conference, the Lord said to me, who did you do it for? Who did you do it for? And she said, for you. And he said, I was there. It's my job to take your labor and bear fruit with it. It's your job and my job to be faithful, to devote everything to the Lord and let him accomplish what he's going to accomplish through it. Number three, don't wait for the funeral to express your love. There's a lot of people you think about, say it now. Don't wait till they're dead. Fourth, Jesus' triumphal entry fulfilled prophecy and proved that he was the promised king of Israel. We need to understand this in historical context to get the picture. Number five, we must worship Jesus for who he is, not for what we want him to do. He is not our Santa Claus. He is not our genie. He is God. And when we worship him as God, then we're, we let him do whatever he's going to do and we submit to it with joy because his plan is far better than ours. And lastly, God holds everyone accountable for their response to his son Jesus. That's the impetus for the gospel and for our obedience. Okay. Thank you so much. I appreciate your attention. Next week, we'll try and pick up the next third or so of this chapter. I love you. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.